The Industrial Revolution, which swept across North America and Europe in the 17th and 18th century, brought so many good things into our lives. It increased, for instance, as a nation, our wealth as a nation. It increased our capacity for the production of goods, the distributions of goods, literally around the world. It increased our standard of living. It increased our access to healthy foods and to better educations. There were medical breakthroughs that happened during this Industrial Revolution that changed the world. Even, even the role of women, not all, but even the role of women increased and improved during this season that we know as the Industrial Revolution. But has been well documented, <laughs> it wasn't all good, right? I mean, it also increased some really bad things, some really negative things. For instance, we saw a significant increase in child labor because it was much cheaper to hire women and children to work in these dangerous, dirty factories than it was to hire men. Our working hours. We had been an agrarian society where, where the sun dictated when the workday started and ended, but now we had electricity. Now we had factories that could be lit and worked all day and all night long. People work 12 and 14 hours a day toiling in these dirty, dark, and dangerous factories. And perhaps most significantly, it increased our need for the, this one substance that fueled all of us, all this progress, all this newly filling cities, all these newly functioning factories that fueled this new rail system that distributed these goods all over the world. And what was that substance? Coal. <laughs> coal, right? I mean, suddenly we needed a whole lot more coal to keep all of this going. To keep all of this progress moving forward, we needed more minds. We needed deeper minds. We needed bigger minds. And as a result, we got more dangerous minds. You see, as they dug deeper and deeper and went further and further and all of this expanded, they began to open up these pockets of this toxic gas called carbon monoxide. We're all probably familiar with it, which is toxic in and of itself. I mean, just breathing the stuff will kill you eventually. But it's worse than that. Carbon monoxide, as you probably know, is odorless and colorless. It's lighter than air. It's virtually undetectable. You wouldn't know you were being exposed to it until it was too late, until it was literally killing you. But it's worse than even that. <laughs> because on top of being colorless and odorless and virtually undetectable, it was also highly explosive. And so these stories began to emerge and to come out in the news literally around the world of all of these cases of, of women and men and children being killed in mining Accidents, these tragic, tragic stories. But then something remarkable happened. Tragic, but remarkable. It happened in a, in a little town in northern England near the, the new city of Newcastle. And a mining operation called Erpeth Kaleri, Kir Kaleri, on Monday, December 17th, 1906. The men, the women, and the children had all gone into the mine at about 6 a.m. after they'd gotten the all clear. It had, the mine had been inspected. They said it would be fine. So they went in and began working. And then at about 10.15, the workers up at the top knew that there had been an enormous explosion deep down in the mine. They knew not because they heard the explosion, but because the ground shook. And they felt the explosion. The mine manager and all the other workers rushed to the scene. They, they ran into the mine to try to save these people, to save their friends and co-workers. And then they too began to succumb to these gases. The manager, in fact, had to be carried out because he had passed out. It was unconscious. So finally, hours later, a special rescue team arrived on the scene with all the latest technology to help rescue or at least recover the victims of this accident. They look something like this. I think we have a picture. 
up there. It looks so foreign to us, but at the time, this was the cutting-edge technology. They had special goggles. They had special breathing filters. They had oxygen masks. They had everything you need. They even had that classic life-saving device, the birdcage, which I've seen in so many of those old, you know, Baywatch episodes. I mean, you, everyone needs a birdcage in order to do life-saving, right? Why a birdcage? Many of you know. I mean, and remember, this was cutting-edge technology at the time. They discovered that canaries, you know, the little yellow lovable birds, Tweety, Tweety Bird from Sylvester and Tweety, they were way more vulnerable to carbon monoxide than humans. They breathed at about twice our rate, so they were ingesting, they were inhaling so much more carbon dioxide, so we knew that they would die way before a human would. (laughs) It's a little dark, but it was a different time, right? And lest it get too dark, I want to point out that they actually developed this technology that you see there, this cage that they were held in, it was called a revival cage. Because the handle was more than just a handle. It was actually a cylinder of oxygen. So when that bird went down, they could push a button and the oxygen would be released, flooding that cage with oxygen and reviving the canary. See, so no no animals were injured in the making of this film. (laughs) In fact, a local news report uh, said it this way, which I think is so fun. This is, again, from England. When the rescue party descended the mine, a canary in a cage was kept in front and dropped off its perch when the danger point was reached, overcome by the poisonous atmosphere. This is a new use for the canary, and it's satisfactory to know that the bird recovered from the effects of the afterdamp and was produced at the inquest. That is so British. That is so Harry Potter, right? <laughs> you know, it is satisfactory to the pult for <laughs> inquest. <laughs> it makes mining sound way more like Downton Abbey. <laughs> Those miners needed to have these early warning signs that they were being exposed to something toxic. In fact, this new method of detecting toxins in the atmosphere became so effective that it became British law in 1906 that two canaries had to accompany all miners at all times as they went into these mine shafts to ensure their safety, to ensure that they would have that early warning. And it remained in effect as law in Great Britain until 1996. Do you know that? And in fact, it is still used around the world for other kind of toxic gases, mustard gases, and the Tokyo subway da- attacks. And it is still in use uh, today. I'm sure many of you have a, a CO detector in your house, right? In your basement and somewhere. We don't. We're old school. Uh, we just bring a canary down. When we're going to like <laughs> get pizza down the deep freeze. But <laughs> no, we all have them, right? Because we all know that the carbon monoxide is still dangerous. It's still toxic. It's still explosive. We don't want it. In our houses, we need to have warnings if we're being exposed to these gases that we can't smell, that we can't see. And these devices allow us to do that, a way of detecting them before it's too late. Wouldn't it be great if we had, like, detectors for toxic people in our lives or toxic work environments or toxic opportunities or or toxic ideas, toxic theology, toxic churches? Wouldn't it be great if you could come to church, just bring your canary cage, and then just watch the canary, like, oh, canary down. We got some heresy. (laughs) That's not the gospel. (laughs) Revive the canary. (laughs) It's true, though. I mean, like carbon monoxide, so often toxic teaching, toxic ideas are odorless, colorless. We don't even know we're being exposed to them until they're already doing damage to us. I think it's possible to sit under religious leaders, to to read books, to watch videos, to hear these ideas from our friends and not even realize that what we're ingesting, what we're filling our brains with, what we're filling our hearts with is explosive and it's toxic and it's killing us. That's why we've been in this series that we're concluding today, the new Pharisees. 
looking at how the teachers of Jesus' day, the teachers of Paul's day, began to introduce these toxic ideas that began to permeate and change and make all of it toxic, all of it explosive, all of it deadly. I invite you to turn with me uh, to the New Testament book of Galatians. We're going to be starting in chapter 6, the last chapter of the book. And basically, there's this group of people, you'll remember from the earlier weeks, there's this group of people that are introducing this new teaching. That in order to fully follow Christ, you need to first become fully Jewish. They were called Judaizers. And they taught that if you wanted to be a follower of Christ, you needed to first conform to all of the laws, follow all of the laws of Judaism, all of the dietary restrictions, all of the ceremonies, all the rituals, everything about it. They even taught that in order for a man to become a Christian, he needed to be circumcised. Yikes, that's not much of a sales pitch. I mean, they taught that, yes, what Christ had done on the cross was important, but it wasn't enough. They taught law plus, like we have to follow all of the law, including circumcision, all the dietary, all those pieces, and then add Jesus. Then it's complete. And Paul says, that, that's not the gospel. They're preaching a new gospel, and it's toxic, and you're buying it. Stop it. Stop it. He says throughout this book, salvation through following the law is not the gospel. Trying to keep the law doesn't bring righteousness. In fact, it brings a curse. He teaches God's demand for righteousness is not negotiable, but it's fulfilled in Christ and in Christ alone. And he he taught that freedom is fundamental to this true gospel, but it's not a license to sin. That would also be an entirely different gospel. Paul, ending his letter to them by saying these words. And in my copy, well, I'll read it to you here. It says, notice what large letters I use as I write these closing words in my own handwriting. In the copy that I'm reading, which is the NLT, they literally have all of those letters bolded. Like, like somebody sending a text that just sounds like they're screaming. <laughs> That's what Paul is doing here. Like, notice, I'm, I'm making the letters bigger so you know how, much I, how strongly I feel about this. Those who are trying to force you to be circumcised, want to look good to others. They don't want to be persecuted for teaching the cross of Christ alone can save. And even those who advocate circumcision don't keep the whole law themselves. They only want you to be circumcised so they can boast about it and claim you as their disciples. Paul Paul is saying here that these people are spreading this toxic message for their own good, for their own protection, for their own advancement. They want to look good. They want to avoid persecution. They want to boast about the number of followers they're attracting, the number of likes they're getting. They don't keep the whole laws themselves. They're hypocrites. They're play-acting, he says. Then he goes on. He says, as for me, may I never boast about anything except the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. Because of that cross, my interest in this world has been crucified. And the world's interest in me has also died. It doesn't matter whether we've been circumcised or not. What what counts is whether we've been transformed into a new creation. Paul Paul is teaching, as we talked about from from week one, it's not scripture plus. It's not law plus. It's not circumcision plus. It's not cross plus. It's cross, period. It's the cross, period. If there's anything else that's being presented to you as the gospel, then it's not the gospel. And warning alarms should be going off in your head. Like flags and beepers and like your canary should be on his back at the bottom of the cage. That should be a warning sign for you. Like those miners needed early warnings from the canary that they're being exposed to toxic stuff, there's a place to write this in your notes. We need to have warnings to avoid toxic stuff. 
So what are those alarms? What are those canaries? What are the warning signs of Phariseeism in us and in the teachers that we're allowing to shape our worldview? The the teachers that some friend is sending on to us in a video that you just need to watch because you'll understand everything about insert really complicated issue that can't possibly be handled in one YouTube video. We've all got that friend, right, who said, oh, racism, I got this. Watch this video. Then you'll know. (laughs) Oh, oh, money, here's, you know, oh, inequities, just watch this video. Then you'll know. What are the real alarms? Well, the truth, we've seen them throughout this whole book, throughout this whole series. Paul has given us a number of canaries that we've looked at, these early warning canaries. The first to write down is biting and devouring. If the teaching or the belief or the leader or the politician or the whatever it is is causing and producing and calling us to hate, to fight, to result in conflict and biting and destroying one another or even wanting to destroy our enemies, it might be a warning sign. We looked at it last week. Paul, back in chapter 5, says, For the whole law could be summed up in one command. Love your neighbor as yourself. But if you're always biting and devouring one another, watch out. Beware. That's a warning. That should be sending off signals to you. The second warning I think that Paul's given us throughout this book is this idea of selective moral stance. Jesus, back in Matthew 23, had had chastised the Pharisees. He said, you do all this work to tithe like the tiniest bits of your garden herbs, to filter out a gnat from your tea in case you might accidentally drink an unclean animal, right? You go to all these great lengths for these little things that you've missed the weightier parts of the law, which you were supposed to remember, those being justice and mercy and faith. Jesus there, and Paul here, I think, calls them hypocrites, play actors, selectively choosing to highlight one sin over another while missing the most important stuff. As we look at our own faith, as we evaluate the the voices that we're allowing to shape us, the teachers and the leaders and the politicians who we are allowing to be the primary shapers of our worldview, is there inconsistency? Are they taking a selective moral stance on one issue? while completely ignoring another, perhaps weightier matter. I'm not saying they're not important issues, but are they ignoring other issues that are perhaps even weightier? Thirdly, a warning sign is, are they Judaizers, or in our case, Christianizers? Paul is ready to warn the toxic teaching of these Judaizers. One of our modern-day warning signs should be asked, are, are, are they modern Judaizers or Christianizers? Are they teaching you or are they teaching others that they need to become culturally Christian and adopt all of our views on politics and social issues and doctrinal minutiae and all of the things associated with it in order to fully accept Christ? Are they inviting people to accept Christ or are they demanding that people accept American evangelicalism? I'm not saying Christ and American evangelicalism are antithetical necessarily, but I'm absolutely saying they aren't identical absolutely. Fourthly, is the Holy Spirit absent? If the teaching isn't of the Spirit, if they never talk about the Holy Spirit, if we never talk about the Holy Spirit, that should be an early warning. I wasn't planning on telling the story, but my grandfather, very late in his life, came to my dad and said, I've just read this book about the Holy Spirit. Do you know about this? 
He somehow had made it through his entire life in the evangelical church and didn't know about the Holy Spirit. That should be a warning sign. As Paul said, it's not circumcision that matters. It's about life transformation. If we aren't experiencing transformation in our lives, if the people in the ministry are under a certain teacher or under a certain author, under a certain radio host or television show, if they aren't seeking and, and experiencing positive life transformation, if we aren't able to see the fruits of the Spirit demonstrated, that should be a warning. And that brings us to, I think, the last alarm that, that I've identified in this book. Are they producing bad fruit? Because Paul goes there. He says, uh, back in chapter 5, when you follow the desires of your sinful nature, the results are clear. Sexual immorality, impurity, lustful pleasures, idolatry, sorcery, hostility, quarreling, jealousy, outbursts of anger, selfish ambition, dissension, division, drunkenness, envy, wild parties, and other sins like these. He lists this broad range, and I would say that many of us probably could identify that we've been selective on some of these over others. I mean, one of the principles that we discuss as a staff a lot is this idea of lead measures and leg measures. Anybody familiar with this idea? This idea that, yes, you want to measure both the things you're doing on the front end to try to elicit a response, but then also measure the leg measures, the results of that effort. In fact, the desired results, the leg, should significantly impact what you do on the lead and how you measure it. Lead is the activity, lag is the fruit. I think Paul here is saying toxic religion produces toxic fruit. And this isn't just, you know, dressed up behavior management. This isn't just don't do anything on this list and you'll be fine. That's Phariseeism, right? He's saying if your life, if some teacher's life, if some celebrity pastor's ministry is producing hostility and quarreling and jealousy and outbursts of of anger of division and dissension. And that might be a warning sign. That might be evidence of failing to live in the spirit. That might be evidence that your canary needs oxygen, needs reviving. Instead, our lives and the lives of the primary people who are teaching us our worldview and shaping how we think and see the world should produce the fruits of the spirit. Not in order to follow the law. Paul's pretty clear on that but rather as evidence of living in and by the Spirit. Friends, we can't produce peace and joy and love and the fruits of the Spirit. That's, that's Phariseeism, to try to produce that in our lives, to try to produce those results. Instead, our lead measure should be how much are we living into the Spirit and allowing the Spirit to produce that fruit in us. Our effort goes into our connection to the Spirit. So how do we do that? Again, in in chapter 5, Paul says we do it by nailing our passions and our desires to the cross. Part of what I love about these warning signs and these filters is that they're not just applicable to to legalism and Phariseeism, right? You can take these same principles and apply them across the board to the other side of people who are just saying we can abandon all biblical truth. Everyone can just decide what's right in their own eyes and live that way. What's good for you judge and not be judged, all of those things, right? So maybe instead of all of these different warnings, we can boil it down to these two simpler warnings. It's not the gospel if it calls you back into slavery to the law. And it's not the gospel if it calls you back into slavery to sin. Either way, it's toxic. And it will kill you spiritually if you keep breathing it in. And it's not just that we need the early warning signs, right? I mean, it's not like the miner that we see here. He's just going in there like shorts, T-shirt, and a birdcage. <laughs> he has that. 
But in addition, he has all kinds of other things, right? He's got the protective eyewear, the headwear. He's got the filters and the masks. He's got oxygen tanks, a flashlight. He's put on protective filters to keep out the toxic gases, the airborne dust and debris and particulates. And just like he needs filters, we need to have filters to protect us from toxic stuff. Yes, we want, we need the warnings, but in reality, we can't simply like back out of all of society and sit in a room by ourselves and read the Bible all day. <laughs> we need to enter the mine shaft if we're going to be able to help anyone, bring life to anyone, rescue anyone. So what are some of those filters? Again, this is not new material. This is review. You won't be surprised to hear any of this. We need protective filters like media filters. A while back, we did a series on what media we allow in and what filters we use to determine what we let in. Paul, in the book of Philippians, said these words. Finally, brothers, whatever's true, whatever's honorable, whatever's just, whatever's pure, whatever's lovely, whatever's commendable, if there's any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things. And the God of peace will be with you. That's a filter, and that's how we presented it back in that series, the whatever series. We need to run these ideas and these thoughts through these filters. And it doesn't just apply to our entertainment, which I think is so often how we think about this. This applies to our news media, our social media feeds, the podcasts and programs we listen to, the authors we are reading, and the preachers we are allowing to speak into our lives. Chris last week gave us three additional filters. He introduced to a filter we use for the media. He says... When we read or hear an idea that begins to elicit in us this response, this anger or division, we start feeling like biting and devouring. We start feeling like fighting back. It's an opportunity for us to stop and run this amazing new information that your friend sent you in yet another video that's going to answer all the questions about everything. Run it through this filter and say, is it even true? Do the work. Is, is it even true? And if so, then yes, go on to the next question. Number two, but if it's true, ask, is it helpful? And not every true thing is helpful, especially when you're presenting it from a place of anxiety and anger and knee-jerk reaction. If it's true but not helpful, then it's time to pause and process. When would this be helpful? How can this be helpful? And then finally, he reminded us, the last filter is, is it kind? Chris pointed out that it's God's kindness that leads us to repentance. And therefore, our anger and our fighting is never going to work. By the way, if the answer to number one is, is it true, is, is no, then you should just block that friend's email and just like send it all to a spam folder, okay? I'm just saying, um, I'm not saying you can't be friends with them, but you know. That brings us to <laughs> our next filter. I think we need people filters. We can love people without having them be the primary voices in our life. Who are the voices in your life that you need to maybe filter out a little bit? I'm not saying never talk to them again. I'm not actually saying block all their emails, although I've certainly blocked some of my friends on social media because they're crazy. Are there people in your life who need to just not be the primary voice anymore? That you're hearing, you're seeking to understand, you're seeking to listen but they're not the people who are allowing, you're allowing to primarily shape your worldview. Instead, God, finding godly people who gently guide us back to the path. Who are those people in your life? 
Paul opens the last part of his letter, chapter 6, with these words, and we looked at them last week. Dear brothers and sisters, if another believer is overcome by some sin, you who are godly should gently and humbly help that person back into the right paths. Be careful not to fall in the same temptation yourself. Share each other's burdens, and in this way obey the law of Christ. I've said it before. This is the picture that Paul presents. We are a people in need of a people. (laughs) Find those people in your lives and be those people for the people in your lives. Last week, as we said in the announcements, we kicked off Small Church, and it was well-received. We're starting this new thing, Small Church Connect, coming up. Find those people. Be in the kind of community where people can humbly and gently correct and reshape your path. Sometimes I think we need thought filters. Like sometimes we get in our own brains, right? I mean, that idea that got kicked out to you and you just can't, it's just kind of got stuck in your brain. It's waking you up at four o'clock in the morning. You just can't process on it, right? We did a great series a couple of years ago uh, that addressed these idea of, of thought filters. It was called Not Alone, which really dove into facing our thoughts. When we hear a teaching or an idea and it's ruminating in our brains, we need to ask, what is this teaching doing in me? What physical response is it eliciting? And this is not just psychological mumbo-jumbo, right? Paul instructs us and invites us to take our thoughts captive. In 2 Corinthians, he says this, We demolish arguments and every pretense that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. And we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. I'm not saying anxiety is just in your head. And this is just a spiritual issue. But I'm saying we are being promised that, that we could take our thoughts captive and they don't get to boss us around. <laughs> they don't get to own us. Warning signs are important. Filters are important. But if you look back at our minor guy again, you can see that in addition to protective filters like a gas mask, he also has on an oxygen tank. This rescue worker wasn't only trying to get an early warning, wasn't only trying to filter out the toxic stuff. He's also making sure that he got plenty of the good stuff, plenty of the necessary stuff, plenty of the oxygen sustain him in the midst of that dangerous zone. We need to make sure we're also getting plenty of that last filter, which is scripture filters. In our church, in our denomination, in our small church, in this place, we believe that scripture is the final word. It is the only and best standard for what is true, what is helpful, and what is kind. In our church, in our small churches, in our denominations, we ask two questions when we go to God's word together. I'm sure you know them. Where is it written? And we don't mean like, where is it proof texted? (laughs) Because we can find those verses. We're saying, together, let's determine, let's, let's discern. What does Scripture have to say? All of Scripture have to say on this particular issue. And then having found agreement on that, we ask the next question. How goes your walk? In other words, it's not enough to simply be puffed up by knowledge. We need to actually help each other live these truths out. Where is it written? If that's what Scripture says, then how do we do that together? We need to be in community with others who depend on the scripture filter and help us to live it out. Paul ends his letter, as I said, with this. It doesn't matter whether you've been circumcised or not. What counts is whether we've been transformed into a new creation. May God's peace and mercy be upon all who live by this principle. They are the new people of God. A phrase came to mind. As I was preparing this, we don't need a new revolution. We need a new revival. 
We, we need the oxygen of the Holy Spirit in our faith, in our minds, in our hearts, in our discernment, in our approaching to Scripture, and our approaching of walking this out together. And there are so many people among us, maybe even in this room, maybe watching online that feel like these canaries. They, they've succumbed to the toxins, and they need revival. They need what's real, what's sustaining, what's life-giving the pure, the healthy. What if we could be a place where people like that who've experienced that sort of level of trauma, that sort of toxins could actually find revival? What if we could be a place that wasn't just like toxic neutral, (laughs) sitting always in the middle of the fence and everything, but actually a place that's like (laughs) anti-toxic, a place that's inviting and experiencing and bringing others to life-changing healing and revival what if we be a place that, that helps one another to build warning systems, to build filters, and to live this out together, keeping each other connected to God's word? That is the community we believe God has called us to be, that God is, is creating un, in us to be, a culture, a church that doesn't duck the hard stuff, as we often say, but that doesn't just call us back into slavery to the law or slavery back into slavery to sin but instead addresses important issues like gender and identity and sexuality in ways that don't produce that toxic environment that so often marks these conversations, but instead breathes life, brings oxygen, brings revival, infuses revival back into those conversations that brings back to life those who've succumbed to the toxins. Friends, we aren't called to be the new Pharisees. Right here he says, we're called to be the new people of God, representing his heart, his character, his rescue, his life to a world so desperately in need of it. Let me pray for us. God, we thank you that in your word you've acknowledged that in this world we will have troubles, we will face real challenges, but you've given us these tools which, which we can experience, and not only experience, but share with others real hope, real transformation, real restoration, a real revival. God, I pray that you would stir that in us. God, we, we repent of the ways in which we, like so many before us, have turned this into a list of do's and don'ts. The ways in which we have been selective in what we take a stand on while ignoring so many of the weightier issues. God, we repent of the ways in which we have, and even subtle ways, looked, begin to look more and more like the new Pharisees. God, help us to experience and to share with the world what it is to truly be the people of God, empowered and fueled by your Holy Spirit, producing transformation in us. We ask in the name of Jesus. Amen.